Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. If you got one, you can open it. It only took me five years, but we made it. We're going we're gonna to preach out of the book of John. <laughs> five years, but I made it. A couple of things I want to mention to you, and then we're going to get started. When we get through today, every Sunday, we have to tear all this down and set it up so we can use it during the week. And we've got some very faithful people that do it week after week. That, that doesn't work. I know it ain't working. They think the clock on the see the clock on the wall is broken, which means I can go for how long? <laughs> Nothing like a preacher likes two things: a crowd, a mic, or three things: a microphone and a broken clock. We got how'd you fix it, man? You mad? Your son did it. Wow, impressive. He must be going to CBU or something. Anyway, after today's service, if you can hang on some of you guys especially, it takes about 30 minutes, and we just need some more bodies. Uh, Jim Gentry and some other folks know what to do. We just need some labor. I've always been, I, I'm good at tearing stuff up. As long as somebody tells me, tear it up, I got it. But we just need some guys to hang around every week. You could help Jim and uh, his, his family, and there's some others that are very faithful. Week after week, they do it, and just, just to have some more bodies to help do that would be great. If you can do that, I'd appreciate it. Uh, next week, what's next Sunday? Anybody know? You don't know. What's today? Elvis? Who said it was Elvis' birthday? Hey, my man right there. You know, over the holidays, we celebrated the birthday of the king. On January 8th, we celebrate the birthday of the king. Next Sunday is the 15th. Anybody know why that's significant? What? New? Well, it's close to my birthday. Who said that? Very nice. It's close to my birthday. We'll talk more about that later. All right. I do have a list of my sizes and preferences and type of golf balls. I like things like that out in the lobby. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Next Sunday, the 15th. I, I've, I accomplished something today I've never accomplished. I have, but I'm jokingly. I finished a book in my Bible study class. We finished, finished the book of Romans. There is a God. Now, therefore, starting next Sunday, we're going to begin a new book. And it's one of my absolute, I just, I, I love to study this book because it is incredibly deep. And there's so much to encourage us and remind us in our faith and our walk with Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews. We're going to start it next Sunday and right across the hall in room four. And John's got a brand new class in here. But at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, as well as our home groups on Sunday nights, you just you have opportunities to really get into the Word of God. Both There's a ladies' group that meets across the street. So we've got, it's important to me, it's a passion of mine. If you've been around me any length of time, you know that you, for believers, we have to get in the Word of God and know what it says, because there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of people making it up as they go and lying about what it says. So it is vital that you know what it says. All right, now, uh, Dan, have we got it? All right, it's 2012, it's January 8th, and I know everybody makes resolutions, like I'm going to quit smoking this year. Of course, i got to start before I can quit, but I figured oh, that's one I could probably keep. We talked about that last week, and for those of you that were not here last week, and I won't call your names out, but I know who you are. If you weren't here last week, we have a special resolution for this new year. I do, it's mine. My resolution for 2012, and it's going to be the resolution of Christ Church. I'm going to bring it up on a regular basis throughout 2012. Our resolution for God in 2012 is we're going to be fat for God. I figure I'm going to be fat anyway. I might as well be fat for God. That's the way I look at it. So, which, never mind. I'll tell you what happened. All right, so here it is. For those of you that weren't here last week, write this down. If you were here last week, you're, all, you're on your way. Here's your acronym for 2012. 
You're going to be fat for God. You're going to be faithful. Can't spell it. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> you're going to be available, and you're going to be teachable. And that is a desire of my heart for me, that I will faithfully be where God wants me to be, doing what God wants me to do. Am I going to fail? Yes, but that's my goal. I want to be faithful. I want to be available. God, where is it you need me today? What is it you need me to do? What is it? Where do you want me to serve? We're going to talk more about that as we go through this series. And then I want to be teachable. I want to learn daily something else from the Lord. If you don't do anything but get the little Our Daily Bread devotional books, which are absolutely free, we have them in our lobby. If you don't do anything but get that little devotional book and spend 10 minutes a day alone with God, that's a start. Saying, Lord, I'm available. Teach me something. Challenge me. Encourage me. Motivate me. Maybe I need to be convicted about something. It's amazing. What a little, just 10 minutes alone a day with God may motivate you to be what God wants you to be. So for 2012, we're going to be fat for God. Faithful, available, teachable. All right, turn to John chapter 13. I'm going to check your intellect right quick, and then we're going to move on. John chapter 13. Now let me ask you some questions. Very important. These are very deep, so hang with me. Number one, what do you call a chicken that's crossing the road? Poultry in motion. They get better. They better, thank you. What do you call a boomerang that doesn't work? A stick. There you go, see? You're good. What do you call four, call four bullfighters in quicksand? Hmm, a little Latin here. Cuatro cinco, or Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that one myself. All right. Where do you find a dog with no legs? That's the easy one. Right where you left him. And this is one everybody will know. What do you call cheese that isn't yours? Nacho cheese. There you go. What do you call a man who falls into an upholstery machine? Fully recovered. That was awful. All right. Now, in light of what we're going to talk about today, what do you call a Christian who isn't serving somewhere? A contradiction. Contradiction. Look at the title of today's message. True greatness is in serving. True greatness. From the lips of Jesus Christ, we're going to see true greatness. If you want to be everything that God has for you, wants for you, desires for you, and has planned for you, if you want to be great, if you want to be fat for God, you've got to understand it comes by being a servant. The series we're going to begin today, I'm entitling One Hour. Excuse me, One Hour. Hour, Hour. You were hoping it's only One Hour. Hour, Hour. Hour, hour. I believe this with all my heart, and I'm convicted every time I open the Bible and I spend some time alone in, in my prayer life. As bad as things can get in our world, and, and we're just mixed up, and we're crazy. Is that God, I've said it many times, I'll say it over and over, God has chosen for whatever reason, for this moment in time, it's our time. For the apostles, it was 2,000 years ago. For the early church, throughout history, you ever think trying to think what period in time history that you would have loved to live and think about and I, I wish I could have lived during that time or go back to that time God said Randy and God says to you this is your time this is I want you in history right now where you are to represent me what a privilege what an honor for the church the church age began we're going to see to, over the next few weeks so this is a turning point in the history of God's economy it began a brand new age. Jesus came the first time, and he left. 
and he's coming back the second time. In between those two advents is a period of time called the church age. It's our time. It's our hour. It's when Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's going to be in you and with you, and you are going to do, we'll see this in a couple of weeks, greater things than I have done. Wow, incredible. Because the church is universal. And God said, I placed you here for this moment in time, whatever period of time it might be, and then when I'll call you home, this is your hour. This is our hour to serve the king, to serve the king, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, our Savior. I was uh, touched by, I went, as many of you know, I went to the University of Memphis, and I love my school, and particularly basketball. I was a freshman in 72-73 when the greatest team they've ever had, and uh, I went to school with Bill Cook. It played on that team, and I knew I uh, actually got to do, play scrimmage games, pick up games with Larry Finch and, and Bill Laurie, and just I, I love basketball, still do. And Gene Bartow was just an incredible, and you all know Gene Bartow passed away this week and everything that's been going on. And and repeatedly, over and over, even people who I know in in, in the media, and I've heard them say it, that are not Christians, who don't understand that mindset, have said he was such a Christian man. And he was such a nice man. That's the the word you kept hearing over and over. And that cliche that he was a fabulous coach, but he was a better person. For us as Christians... We're going to leave a legacy. Gene Bartow left an incredible legacy, not just as a coach, and he was a great coach, but as a man, as a human being, as a Christian man. When he touched people, when he talked to you, apparently he made you feel like you were important. True greatness for us as believers. G.K. Chesterton said this, one of the greatest theologians that's ever lived. He said, true greatness is found in people who can make others think they're great. If you look at somebody and they understand you're listening to them, you care about them, you're interested in them, you love them, you want what's best for them. True greatness for us is found in serving. This is our hour. If you look on your handout, John 13, 1, we're going to look at these verses today, begins this way. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. John 13, 1 is a turning point in history. John wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, was written for one reason, to prove that Jesus was God and therefore Jesus was the source of life, both now and forever. He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So John, that is the reason John wrote, to prove that Jesus was God. So in John 1 through 12, John records the the public ministry of Jesus Christ where he went about proving that he was God, and he focuses on seven miracles that, Jesus, or miracles that Jesus performed. And his great I am statements, like I am the door, I am, we'll see here in this segment, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. But in John 1 through 12, John focuses on his, Jesus' public ministry and is proving that he is God and that he alone can offer life. Then in John 12, John 13 through the end of the book, but in John 13 through the end, he focuses primarily on Jesus' private ministry with the 12, specifically the 11, excluding Judas, focusing in on that 11 people, those, that 11 men, and saying to them, here's what I need you to do when I'm gone. Hey, boys, it's your turn. And what you're going to see as we begin to walk through this is that Jesus knew these 11 guys were not ready. But notice John 13, 1, he knew that his hour had come. 
This was his divine appointment. This was the moment that he, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from eternity past had set this moment for the redemption plan to peak. This is it. His hour had come. So he focuses here on his private ministry. He, John 1 through 12 is, I am the giver of life. John 13 through 17, he looks at these 11 guys and he says to them, this is how you live that life so that others are drawn to the giver of life. Later, they would be called Christians. At this moment, they were simply called followers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus of Nazareth, or followers of the way later on. And then further on, they would be called Christians. But by extension and by application for us, down through the corridor of time and history and through the pages of the Word of God, Jesus looks right at us and says, Randy, you guys, if you're born again, you're my body, you're my bride, you're my church, and it's your turn. It's your turn. It's your hour. He knew those 11 guys weren't ready. And you know what? He knows we're not ready at times. But he is the power. He is the one who will make it happen. It's Christ in us. It's not me. It's not you. It's not turning over a new leaf and doing the best you can. And I've got a resolution. It's surrendering to what I am, who I am. We talked about last week. Who I am as a Christian. And then going out into my world and occupying till Jesus returns in the power of of the Holy Spirit. It's our hour. It's our turn. True greatness. The first principle Jesus focuses on, it's really fascinating. He's got these 11 guys in the room, and the first thing he talks to them about is be a servant. Very impressive. Very interesting as we walk through this. I want to make sure you get that. Who was the greatest example of servant leadership that ever walked the planet? Jesus Christ. They asked him one time, why are you here, Rabbi? He said, I came for two reasons. I came to serve, and I came to die. That's it. I came to serve, and I came to die. The greatest example of servant leadership that's ever lived, the, in, the omnipotent God who spoke the universe into existence, came as a servant, came as a baby in a manger, came as a lamb, but will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the judge of all men. He is God. But he said, I want to make sure you understand, I came to serve you. So let's get the setting of John 13 as we begin to walk through this. It's the Passover meal. Not an accident that it's Passover, because Passover was instituted as a picture of God's redemption. The death angel passed over the houses in Egypt that had blood on them. And Jesus came without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. Jesus came that we might be saved. He shed his blood that we might be saved. He is our Passover, Paul writes later. So it's not an accident that it's Passover. The Jews are celebrating it. They get together in this borrowed room. We call it the upper room. Theologians call this, this portion of Scripture, John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse. The last night Jesus is on earth. It's an important time. Not just for him, not just for those 12 guys, but in history. It's his hour. It's his time. It's when God is going to finalize the plan. Here it is. Here's what I'm doing. So you'll see it. I'm going to the cross. He knew what lay ahead of him, and it was tough. This is his last night with them, and he's got them together in the upper room. And it begins here. What's really interesting, if you read the accounts of this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this night, the upper room discourse, Jesus also institutes what we've come to call the Lord's Supper. This is my body for you. This is my blood for you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend their time as they recount the upper room discourse, talking about the Lord's Supper. John doesn't even mention it. Fascinating. He doesn't even mention it. You know what he focuses on? Jesus washed our feet. Get it? 
The Lord's Supper is important. There are actually church groups, denominations, that have, that have established foot washing as the third ordinance of the church. Baptism, communion, and foot washing. I don't know about you, but feet are nasty. My wife and I have been married 38 years, and one part of my body, she ain't going nowhere near my feet. They're nasty. I know that. John focuses on that. Don't, don't miss it. The first thing Jesus wanted them to get is you got to be willing to humble yourself. You got to be willing to get down on your knees and wash each other's nasty feet. Not so much literally, but get it. John focuses. He doesn't even mention the Lord's Supper. Obviously, that's important. Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But the foot washing is what John focused. He, it touched him. And the Holy Spirit led him to talk about this. Remember, why was John writing his gospel? To prove that Jesus was God, the giver of life, and the only source where you could have abundant life. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to agonize more than he's ever have. Remember, he's eternal God. He's about to agonize incredibly, not over the physical torture, although that's part of it, but he's about to bear the sin debt of all humanity from Adam till he returns. All humanity. That entire debt of every sin ever committed, he's about to bear on his back. He's perfect. And he gets down and washes their feet. Just a reminder. This is what I want you to do. What's really interesting is look on your handout from Luke. Notice what was going on in the room. Now, there was also a dispute among them, this is the 12, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So then you get a mental picture of what's going on. These guys are in the room with Jesus, the upper room discourse, and what are they doing? They're fighting over, they think in the Messianic kingdom's coming, they're fighting over which one of them is going to be the greatest. By the way, this wasn't an isolated case. They did this regularly. And I'm thinking, as I read this again this week, as I was studying, and I'm thinking, woo, if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, I'm going to turn this over to these clowns. They can't even get along with each other, sound like the church. We wonder why the world doesn't want anything to do with the church, and we can't even get along with each other. Jesus knew he had great plans for these guys. They were going to deny him, and they were going to let him down. He's going to pick them up, put them back, say, I got a job for you. Now to us, he says, hey, it's your turn. It's your hour. Stop fighting about what you're going to do and serve. So let's begin verse 1. Look, the first thing he wants him to understand, it's about humility. It's about humility. I want you to see three things that Jesus, about Jesus. His knowledge, his love, and his humility. Let's begin to walk through it. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Notice the first thing, this Jesus' knowledge. He knew that his hour had come. If you go back to the Gospel of John, and we're not going to read all the verses, if you can go back to chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, here and in chapter 17, the phrase is used over and over again. Earlier, prior to this, Jesus kept saying, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. And we're wondering, what are you talking about? My hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. You get to John 13, 1, how does it begin? 
The hour's here. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. By the way, how long had he known about this hour? Forever? Prior to creating the universe? He knew about the hour. He said, God, it gives you a headache when you try to think about it, but it's really comforting. God doesn't have a time constraints like we do. We have past, present, and future. He created that, by the way, so we could function. He's outside time. He sees the end from the beginning. And if you don't have a headache, you will. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees me standing here right now, and he sees me in my coffin at the same time. He sees me standing here right now. He sees me in my mom's womb. He sees me standing here right now. He sees me with him in heaven forever. He's my dad. Jesus is my savior. He is the groom. We are his bride. And he says, focus on that. Forget the moment. Trust me in the moment. And focus on the big picture. You're mine. And I've placed you here for something special. He knew that he had come from the Father. He knew he was going back to the Father. He was going to be glorified. The glory he had, we'll see more about that as we go through this. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, what was his response? You remember? John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Direct reference to Passover. He's the Lamb of God. He, and then he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He was preferred before me. He ranked before me. He existed before I did. He must increase. I must decrease. He's the Lamb of God. Another thing he talked about himself, he said, I am a lamp that just lets the light of the Lamb shine forth. I love that metaphor. I'm not the light. The light's in me. If you ever get that, you understand what it means to be a Christian. The light of God is in me. My job is to make sure the lamp is on so the lights reflect out and people around me are touched by it. It's my turn. It's my time. When I die, I want people to say, he made a difference. Not that he was, did this or he did that, but he was real. He was honest. He really loved Jesus. He knew it. You were around him. He was crazy. I was joking with my daughter this week, my crazy daughter. And I, we were talking, and, and I don't mean this in a, in a take it please in the right way. I was joking about her putting her picture on the refrigerator. And so I had this picture of me and one of her daughters. And I said, now, now Beth, when I die, I want you to put this in the casket with me. She goes, Dad, you know I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put a picture of me in there. <laughs> And I said, yeah, that's probably true. I do know that. When people are at my funeral, here's what I want them to think. He, that dude was crazy. But boy, he sure loved Jesus. That's all I care about is that he loved Jesus and he loved me. That's it. I, you're going to have a legacy. You're going to have one. What's it going to be? That you made this much money? You did these things? Or that you loved Jesus and you loved people? Oh, by the way, you'll see Jesus again and you can see people again. You ain't taking your success with you. Nothing wrong with being successful. Don't misunderstand God wants you to be successful his way. Be humble. He knew he was departing. He knew why. He knew he was going to be betrayed. It's an interesting picture. If you were Jesus and you knew what Ju- who Judas was all about, would you keep loving him? Ooh, I'd struggle with that, wouldn't you? He just loved him. He kept loving him. It was Passover. It was God's plan. Don't miss the Passover part. He knew he was God. He knew he was in control. He told Pilate that. And he knew on a practical note, he knew that the 11 guys in the room, he knew what Judas was going to do. But the 11 guys that were in the room, he knew they ain't ready for the challenge. But it, that's why he tells them later on, we'll see this next week or the week after. He says this to them, I'm going away. Their first thought is what? No, no, please, please don't do that. We need you. What do you mean you're going away? He said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send somebody else to be with you, just like me. And I'm going to be with you. At the very end of the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? I want you to go into all the world, make disciples, and I'll be with you. How long? Always. Always. I'll be with you. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be just like me, God the third person. I'm going to send him. He'll be with you. 
like I am, but he's also going to be in you. That's why you'll be able to go and do much greater things, a lot more things. Powerful picture. I love the upper room discourse. I get emotional just sitting in my office by myself studying it. I'm overwhelmed by the fact God lets me be part of this. I hope you see that. I hope you feel that as you read this. Be humble. Second thing was Jesus' love. I love this, this point. He knew his hour had come, and he knew everything that was going on. And notice the end of verse 1. He loved them to the end. Some of your translations probably say he loved them to the uttermost. We don't even know what that word means, but that's what a lot of translations have. Literally what it means is that he loved them to the fullest extent possible that you could love. No limits, including Judas. Including Judas. And you know what? He loves you the same way. You ever let God down? Ooh, I have. And I keep coming back to the Bible. Here's what he says. Randy, I love you. I will love you. I do love you. I've always loved you. I'll continue to love you. To the, to the end. It does mean he, let, he loved them chronologically all the way to the end. It does mean that. But it also means in a much greater way the depth of his love. No strings. I just love you. That's what Christians do. He loved Judas who was going to betray him. Sell out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. He loved him anyway. Do you love people that hate you? I struggle with that. You do too. Look at them through the eyes of Jesus. You'll love them. You'll pray for the best for them because he would. Having loved, the Greek is, he'd been loving them, he was loving them, and he would keep loving them. I want you to think about this for a moment. At the most agonizing moment of his life, Jesus bar Joseph of Nazareth, the Son of God, also the Son of Man. He was human. The Bible says he was tempted in every way you are yet without sin. He felt everything he went through. At the most agonizing moment of his life, knowing what was coming the next day, what does John 13, 1 tell us? He's thinking about other people. He is loving those men in that room. Not thinking about himself, not complaining, not whining. He was thinking about them and what they could do after he was gone. And even hanging on the cross, the very people who had beaten him, spit on him, mocked him. He's God. And he looks down and says, forgive them, forgive them. For they know not what they do. To coin a phrase in our economy today, that's something you can wrap your hands around and love and serve. He knew it. He loved them. And then, then look at his humility in verse 4. Remember, what's going on with the guys in the room? They're arguing about what? Who's going to be greatest? You know, dude, I've always been better than you. I can take you. Remember when we were playing hoops? I was always better than you. I'm going to be Jesus' right-hand man. No, no, no. I'm going to be, Lord, am I going to even got their moms involved in another. Real men. I'm great. Here's the greatest God himself, and what does he do in verses 4 and 5? What a great object lesson. They're sitting around the table eating, eating the Passover meal and fighting over about how great they are, and what does Jesus do? He just gets up, girds himself, gets down on his hands and knees, grabs a basin with water and a towel, and starts to wash their feet. What an object lesson. Think they got it? For the moment, who knows? They still had some problems, still struggled, just like you and me. That's the reason, one of the reasons I love this so much is that this, this is real. They're not perfect. You're going to see as you go through and you read the rest of the gospel, they're really not perfect. But Jesus said, you're the ones I've chosen. Fast forward 2,000 years. He looks at us today and says what? Hey, you ain't perfect, but guess what? You're the ones I've chosen. You, me, it's our hour. And he begins it with this point. If you're going to grab your hour and you're going to be what I want you to be, the first thing, his first principle he taught them, we're going to see these principles over the next few weeks, the first principle he taught them was be a servant. Be a servant. If it's about you, you're wrong. If it's about others, you're on the right path. Servant leader. 
servant leader. This is Jesus' humility. He gets down. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. Who's the greatest? The answer is him. He who has servant authority over everything. His first priority is to teach them to be servants. How does he do it? He washes their feet. An interesting object lesson. Who washed feet in those days? It was the lowest menial slave in the house. When you came in, your feet were dirty, and the lowest slave in the house was the one that washed your feet. As a matter of fact, if you were a Jew, you could not be forced as a servant to wash feet. They would have a slave who was a non-Jew do it if he had one. Jesus said, forget all that. I'll wash your feet. I'll wash your feet. He who had all things in his hand earlier, the sovereign God of the universe, holding everything in his hands, grabs a towel and a basin of water. Mentally put that in your brain and meditate on it sometimes. It'll bring you back to what it means to be a Christian. You grab a basin, you grab a towel, and you serve wherever God wants you. Faithful, available, teachable. And then the second point is holiness. Look at verse 6. Humility and holiness. And he came to Simon Peter. I love Simon Peter because he's like most of us. He came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, you ain't washing my feet. We'll get some servant to do that. Jesus answered and said to him, what am I doing to you? You do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, we're not fellowshipping with each other. Now look at Peter. He just, Peter's like all over the place. He's just like us. Look at the next verse. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a bath. Give me a bath. I want to make sure you see the Greek here. It's fabulous what Jesus says in verse 10. He said to him, he who is, who, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. I want to make sure you get this picture because it's, it, man, even right now I'm getting goosebumps as I think about this. Jesus said, Peter said, Lord, wash me all over. Here's the point Jesus wanted to make sure he got, I get, you get. He said, if you've been bathed, you don't have to go through that again. If you're born and bathed means washed all over, here's what Jesus is saying. If you've been washed all over, if you're mine, you're mine. He said, but you do need from time to time to wash. Now, what's he talking about? Two different words. Bathed means washed all over. Wash means a particular part of the body. What part of the body was Jesus washing? Their feet. Here's the picture. They would go to a public bath and take a bath. Like you or I, they'd wash their whole body. On the way home, what got dirty? And that's probably like the knees down, dusty roads. And then when they would come into the house, the servant would wash their feet. Not their whole body. They'd already had a bath, but their feet. You see the great picture Jesus is saying? You're mine. Not all of you because Judas hadn't been bathed. But Peter, you are. You're mine. But your feet are going to get dirty. And you need to get them clean. What's the application for us? If you're born again, you've been bathed in the blood of the Lamb. But your feet get dirty. You need to talk to him about that. Confess your sin. Talk to him. Get rid of whatever it is that's dominating your life at the moment so you can focus on being clean for him. You've, you've taken a bath. But your hands get dirty. You sin. You're not perfect. Peter's perfect example. But you need to wash your feet. So you can have that fellowship. It's union. Notice on your outline, washed versus bathed, and union versus communion. If you are born again, you're in union with Christ. You're his. But the communion, the closer you're going to be, it's all about you. Am I going to wash my feet? Do I want to be clean? Or do I just want to kind of keep my hands and my feet in that sin? Or do I want to be everything he wants me to be? I need to wash my feet. 
That's why being in the Bible and being spending time alone and in prayer is so important. Bathed versus washed. In Exodus 29, Exodus 30, I don't want you to turn there, but there's a picture of this for us. When a priest was consecrated to serve as a priest, he would go in and they had a ceremony where they bathed him all over. They never repeated that ceremony. But every time he went into the tabernacle, the temple courtyard, he washed his hands in the brass laver. What a great picture. All of that was a picture of us as priests for Christ. We are believer priests. You get bathed, you get saved, you get sanctified each day as you wash your hands, wash your feet. 1 Corinthians 6 on your outline, such were some of you. You were washed, but you were sanctified, set apart. You were justified, saved in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You, this has happened to you. You are his. Now, Titus, this is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly, continually, ongoing in your life, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. In other words, you're not saved just so someday in the future you can die and go to heaven. You're saved to focus on constantly, continually, what is the good that God wants me to do? Where does he want me to serve? I humble myself so I can be holy, and then finally, I can be happy. Happiness. True happiness is found in three simple things. Number one, understanding Jesus' example, verses 12 through 17. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and he sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, and, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and also, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Surely I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And the word blessed means supremely happy. You want to be happy as a Christian? You're humble. You're holy. And then you will be happy. True happiness is found in serving others. By the way, if you take the, the word in the two words in the Bible, the word faith and the word believe, it's the same Greek root word, and the definition of that is right here in these three examples. Number one, three, three points. You understand Jesus' example. Jesus looked at him. I love this. He washed their feet, then he looked at him. He said, boys, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you understand what I've done? I have to understand it. But then secondly, I've got to adopt it as mine. It's not any good for me to understand it for somebody else. I need to understand it for me. For example, I can intellectually say, yes, I know Jesus died on the cross. That doesn't save me. What saves me is understanding Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need to accept that. I need to adopt that for me. Understand the example, adopt the example, and then finally, real simply, follow it. Jesus said, do it. What I've done, you get it? It's yours? Now do it. That's the definition of faith in the Bible. I understand, I adopt, and I do. I've been changed by Jesus Christ. Not religion, him. A personal relationship with him. Do you get it? I'm your Lord and Master. I'm your servant. Now do this. This is a very moving for me when I study this, and I, I hope that God uses it in your life. I'll share a simple example from history that maybe will help you with this. During the American Revolution, there was a man in civilian clothes, and he was riding past a group of soldiers. They were repairing a, a defensive barrier, and their leader was shouting instructions at them, screaming at them what to do. And the rider asked the soldier, why don't you help them? And the soldier said, sir, I am a corporal. The guy in his civilian clothes got down off his horse and went over and began to help fix the defensive barrier. 
When he got through, he got back on his horse, horse and he said to the corporal, next time you need some help, call me. My name is George Washington. You think that people got it? George Washington wants us to understand we're important. We're important. Jesus Christ looks at us today and says, it's not somebody else's job. It's your job. It's your time. It's our hour. And you know what? It's an honor. It's a privilege to call myself Christian and to share him with my world. As you look at a new year, I truly want it to be a year where I'm faithful, available, and teachable. I want it for me, and I want it for you. If you're not born again, what a great time to start a year. Look at Jesus hanging on that cross, dying for you, and saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Forgive me. Save me. Bathe me. I want to be a follower of yours. And for those of us that are saved, Jesus says, you know what to do. Just do it. Do it. You bow your heads, please. Just quietly bow your heads. Lord, as we close out our time together today, I pray you would just, each person, right here in our seats, we would just humble our hearts before you. Nobody else but me. Lord, you would convict where conviction needs to be. You would remind. You would encourage. You would motivate that for Christians, we're going to be servants. So we look at this great discourse, the principles Jesus laid out to live the abundant life. But the first one is to be a servant. I want that to be me sitting in this chair. I want it to be Randy Lockley standing here. Every day, we're servants of each other, of you. Lord, for anyone who's seated here who's not a Christian, this would be their moment where they just say yes to Jesus. Lord, I want to be your child. I want to serve you. So, Lord, you take this time as we sing, as we worship, as we close out today to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing. Mm -hmm.